This is Local Color, distributed by Your Public Studios, a podcast dedicated to the artists, entrepreneurs, and social innovators using their talents to make Baltimore and the DMV a better place. I'm your host, Jason V, and on the show today... Baltimore Beat founder and editor-in-chief Lisa Snowden. It's only natural when you're at the top of your game to go from a worker to a boss, and heavy is the head that wears the crown, even if it's stuffed with a million bucks, literally. Running a black-owned and operated nonprofit newspaper is hard work, but Lisa and the Beat place black stories and workers front and center in an industry that routinely struggles with representation in the newsroom. If you've listened to Local Color long enough, or you know me in real life, and for that you're welcome, you'll remember I had a brief career in journalism. I never quite hit the five-year mark, but nowadays, unless you're a TV anchor in a top 10 market or your family can afford it, being a journalist is financially stressful at best. You can't eat bylines, and even if you make it in the door, it's an extremely cutthroat industry, doubly so if you're a minority. But in today's digital world, independent journalism is becoming more and more important to telling the real stories that mainstream media deems either unimportant or off-brand. In other words, they'll only tell you what they think you need to hear. Scale down to a local level and the problem is just as bad. It's no secret that, despite Baltimore's majority-minority demographic, for years there was a diversity issue in the newsroom. On the surface, it's getting better, but what's happening behind the scenes? Shout out to LaFontaine Oliver for doing his part to carry that fire, and Lisa Snowden, editor-in-chief of the Baltimore Beat. Her mother was a schoolteacher, and Lisa remembers her mother taking her and her brother to the library often. Lisa would enter empty-handed and leave with stacks of books in each arm. While reading and writing were her passions, school was not. She says she did okay in school, and it wasn't until college that she got serious about her craft. Well, when I graduated, I went to community college. I went to Anne Arundel Community College, and that really motivated me to get out of my parents' house. So I got straight A's there and went to Towson University and studied journalism and graduated. Another one of my guests, Thomas James, the the art curator, he's also from Annapolis. And I think a lot of people from Maryland, when they think Annapolis, they think of like one specific image of it. So Mm -hmm. I want to ask you as well, um, do you feel like Annapolis has it kind of falls victim to the single story that people just think it's the Navy and boats and rich white people. Absolutely. Um, My family is very much working class black folks. And there's there's a large community of working class black folks in Baltimore. And not too many people ever talk about that. I tell people that I'm from Annapolis and they immediately think of, you know, the downtown historic part of Annapolis. And that really was not a part of my life. As I got older, it was, but Black people didn't really do that. They do it more now. Um, I think that there were times where it was kind of segregated, not actively segregated, but, you know, Black people had a life kind of outside of that downtown area. And so that's been my experience with, with Annapolis. Yeah, I worked down there for about a year from, I want to say, like 2020. 2020 to 2021 maybe or 2022 um wait no it's 2022 now uh anyway I worked down there for about a year and I didn't work in the downtown area like you were saying I worked um 
I think it's what is the main street? It's off of I think West Street. Um, and then there's another one, like um, Ares T. Allen Boulevard. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. it's yeah, very so close to where my parents live. Yeah, so I worked around in that area, and what I noticed is that it was a lot more, like you say, um, working class or um, blue collar around there. There was like a lot of not manufacturing, but a lot of like boat cleaning companies or tile companies or stuff like that in the area that I worked in. And then whenever I, I drove around for like lunch or something, I mean, there was the um, like the nice mall and the shopping centers off of Riva Road and stuff. But what I did notice, like if you're not really in the downtown area, it, it it's kind of like um, like Owings Mills or other places out in Baltimore County where it's a little bit more diverse. But then there is a clear delineation between like the you don't have a boat and have a lot of money and like you do have a boat and have a lot of money areas in, in Annapolis. So it's interesting to hear another person of color from Annapolis talk about uh, that divide. It's uh, unfortunate, but I, I think that it's worth noting. I'm kind of jumping a little bit ahead, but when I worked at City Paper, I did a piece on Black community that talked about the community that Henrietta Lacks was from, which was a Baltimore County community, but it reminded me of Annapolis. And I talked to a historian who told me that the area that my family is in was kind of like the area that black people settled in, which is parole, which you mentioned. Um, it was the area that black people settled in when they kind of started to get a little bit more upwardly mobile and kind of get like nice steady working class jobs. Mm -hmm. So I didn't even know that. Yeah, that's I, I again. It it's so interesting how when you dig beneath the surface, you'll just find so much more about a town or an area's history, especially as it pertains to uh, the black people that are living in that town. So uh, it it's just always amazing to hear stuff like that. Um, so you talked about it a little bit, and I do want to dive uh, a little bit deeper into this, uh, your journalism career. So you went to school at, at Towson, you graduated um, mm -hmm. with your degree in journalism, and then you started your journalism career on TV Hill, uh, interning at WBAL, and you worked as a, rep a web reporter for um, WJZ. Mm -hmm. And looking through your other credentials a position that stuck out to me was that you reported for the virgin island source so if am i to understand that you lived in the virgin islands and w were a reporter there for some time mm -hmm. at the time my husband and i um my husband my mother-in-law at the time had a house in saint thomas in the u.s virgin islands and we were just like why not try it she wasn't living there at the time so it was just an open house um, this was kind of during the recession in like the earlier 2000s. Mm -hmm. And my husband at the time was an architect and a lot of people weren't really building here in the States, but there were people that were wealthy enough that the recession didn't really affect them that were still building in the Virgin Islands. We were like, okay, he can work there. I found this online website so I could work there. And then we would stay, we could stay somewhere for free. So we moved down there and it actually ended up being kind of important in my career. It was really kind of one of the first places that I really started making the connection between Black people living places that have access to a lot of wealth and still living in a lot of poverty. In a lot of strange ways, my experience in the Virgin Islands reminded me so much of Baltimore City because there's Black people in power there, just like there's Black people in power here in Baltimore City, but they don't necessarily always do the best 
for the Black people that don't have power. And I was writing stories about people that had health disparities, people that were living with a lot of, relatively a lot of crime. And that's when I really started thinking that way. And I carried that, those thoughts and those processes back when I, when I came to, back to Baltimore and started working at the Afro. In your opinion, um, or your experience when covering those types of stories, what do you think it is that causes black people, and I don't think it's unique to black people, but since we're both black, what do you think it is that causes black people to reach like a, a certain level of status or have that access to power, but not want to help out other people who uh, who have those like health or income disparities? Do you think that in some cases it's like an intentional thing or do you think that like once you enter a, a different tax bracket or a certain type of um like social circle you kind of just stop associating with with people yeah i mean I'm, I'm glad that you said that it's not just with black people because i definitely don't think it's just black people um but i think in this case i think that access to power can corrupt mm -hmm. and i think that there can be times even when you um maybe enter this system and think that you're going to be the one to change the system. And then you just get comfortable, you get money thrown at you, and then it's just kind of more comfortable to keep the status quo alive. And the status quo is, sorry, the status quo is usually not what helps Black communities. When did you end up leaving the Virgin Islands and heading back to the States? When we moved down there, my son was a year old. Um, while we were down there, I got pregnant with my daughter. And I came back here to the States to deliver her. And then we went back down there with two small kids. And then it was just too hard um, financially because it's not cheap to live down in the US Virgin Islands. Mm -hmm. And back here in Maryland, we had free babysitters because <laughs> most <laughs> of our family is here. So we said, let's just go back. <laughs> so once you got back, uh, you mentioned that you started uh, working at the Afro and something that I also noticed doing my research for you, you worked at City Paper. And mm -hmm. I just want to say thank you for your work because I read the City Paper all the time uh, on my breaks when I was working in college. Uh, it kept me from going crazy. It was a, it was a hilarious and entertaining and interesting newspaper. Um, can you talk a little bit about your experience working there? Because City Paper is like a, is like an alt paper institution for such a long time. I think it was 40 years that it was in print. Yep, 40 years. It almost feels like this faded opportunity because I got back to Baltimore. That's when Freddie Gray died and there was other kind of movements around the country talking about police accountability and police violence against Black people. I was writing for the Afro Freelance and City Paper saw the work that I was doing. After covering the uprising and then the aftermath of the uprising, the staff at City Paper, which was all white, pretty much. Mm -hmm. um, no, they were all white. Like they had freelance writers and contributors that were black, but the, the full-time staff was all white. They started thinking about how they could do better and actually try to serve Baltimore's black population better themselves. Like they knew, you know, they were doing their best that they could to be good sources of information for what this kind of struggle against police police brutality looked like, but they also were very, very aware that they were white people. Mm. And so that's when they hired me as a full-time writer. And they told me like, I could 
bring my experiences as a black person and a black woman to the job. Like a lot of times with journalism, you're told like you're supposed to be very objective and you only, you know, write the quote unquote facts. But I was encouraged to bring my whole self to the job. And that really like, if I talk about being at the in the US Virgin Islands, kind of starting this idea of writing about black injustice and civil rights. City paper was really, I think, where it really took legs and went to a different place. So when I was there, I got to cover the trials that happened for the the few, the few trials that did happen for the, some of the police officers who had Freddie Gray in, in custody when he got the injuries that later led to his death. I told my editor at the time, who was Karen Hooper, I'm not a court reporter. Like I feel a little bit intimidated to try to do this because I don't have a lot of court reporting experience. And she told me like, you don't have to really report the facts every day because there's gonna be so many other journalists there doing like the, this is what happened in court today. Like the Sun's gonna be there, the Guardian, the New York Times, all of those places. She was like, I would rather hear what you are experiencing as a black person. And so the pieces that I wrote were the pieces that were kind of like, what does it feel like to be somebody sitting in a courtroom and Freddie Gray could have been my cousin or my brother? And what does it feel like to be like a black reporter? And there's not very many other black reporters surrounding me. And, you know, the story, taking the story home with me in a way that maybe some of those other reporters did not. And hearing the attorneys for the police officers say, like, not to blame him for his own death, but... And so documenting those things was really what I tried to do and talking about the ways that he was basically like never could have gotten a fair trial or, you know, it wasn't even a trial for him, but the way that it could have never really been any real justice for him or his family because of the way that the system is set up and the way that like Black people are denied humanity and justice in our legal system. When you were at City Paper, you were there also for its demise, correct? Yep. I, I was not there at the very end because the son hired me away um, about maybe three months before it ended. And then I worked in the, on the son's editorial board. When you were there, though, did you get, ever get any feelings or did you ever notice anything going on that made you think like this doesn't it this seems like things aren't going to be lasting here too much longer? Yeah, I don't know at that point how long it had been since the Sun had purchased City Paper because City Paper used to be independent and then it was owned and bought by the Sun Media Group. But everybody that I talked to said that they pretty much knew as soon as the Sun purchased the City Paper, that was the beginning of the end. Like it was it was not for them to expand journalism. It was for them to basically kill competition. And so when it was like decided and announced, no, like people were disappointed, but very few people were surprised. Yeah, it, it was kind of like a like a, a trap and kill situation where, like you said, you you buy them not to 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 build them up. You just buy them to kind of snuff them out and have them die in the dark. Um, what did it What did it feel like for you? <clears throat> excuse me, being hired away from City Paper by the the company that killed it. Did Did you have like a kind of like um, a crisis of faith or, or any issues with your conscience when you accepted that position? No, because I appreciated the opportunity to be on the editorial board because yeah. that meant that I was really like a voice that was influencing the official 
kind of stance of the paper. And then I also got a chance to write my own opinion pieces. So I was like, you know, it might not have been my favorite place ever, but I was very happy to be writing, to be employed as a journalist still, and then be able to use kind of whatever access to power that I got to hopefully be a voice for change or be a voice for good. Can you talk about the importance of Black journalists telling Black stories and, and how newsrooms should understand that they can't treat their Black uh, employees or employees of color the same as their white employees. Um, I worked in news radio for a little bit down in down in DC. I worked for uh, 99.1 NEW, um, and you know Bloomberg bought it and pretty much fired everybody. But if I'm being honest, I still have a chip on my shoulder about how some things uh, operated down there. So yeah, can you just talk about why newsrooms really should pay a different kind of attention to their uh, to their black employees? Yeah, I mean, even today, after hundreds of years of journalism in this country, study after study shows that newsrooms are still not diverse. They're still mostly white. And there's no way that you can tell a full story of this country or this city or this state without having a diversity of voices at every level. It just makes me so mad because we're, we're missing so much. Another thing that happens sometimes is that they'll, they'll hire reporters and then you don't get any higher than a reporter. You don't get to be an editor or you don't get to be an editor in chief. And so like when you're a reporter, you're writing the story and that's great, but you still don't, and your name is on the story, but that still doesn't necessarily mean that you have autonomy over the story. So maybe you wrote it in a certain way and your editor said, actually, no, you're being biased because you're, you know, you're talking about that something is racist, calling something racist is bias. Um, so let me take a pause because I get really excited. I get really like passionate about this part. No, um, please, please. Yeah, but it's me. like there, there's this lie that you're told that journalism is objective and journalism has never been objective. Journalism in the United States was funded in the beginning in part by ads for runaway slaves, like looking for slaves, looking to buy slaves. So how do you even start with objectivity there? It's like there's this thing where whiteness or things that are accepted widely by white people are the norm and black experiences are something that you need to shove in like an opinion section because they're not, they're not real. And I just think all of that needs to change. And that's a lot of the reason why I started the beat. There's a professor who was at Morgan. I'm not sure if he's still there, but his name is Lawrence Brown. Um, you might recognize him because he's the one that kind of coined the terminology, the black butterfly and the white L for Baltimore. Like the white L is central Baltimore where it's like, you know, more moneyed and it's more white people live. And then black people are in East and West Baltimore that sometimes don't get as much funding and don't look as nice. He also did some research about, um, about the Baltimore Sun's history and the Baltimore Sun would run articles, basically like if black people tried to buy property in places that they, that white people didn't think that they should, they would run the names and addresses of these people. So they're basically kind of encouraging white people to go and harass these families or these people that have purchased this property so that they would stay where they, where they were supposed to stay. So how is that? That's not objective. When yeah. you are a white journalist and you're deciding to go talk to certain people, you're, talk, you're gonna go talk to the cops and get their side of the story, but you're not talking to the victims, that's not objectivity. 
and now I'll stop. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I appreciate the earnestness and the authenticity of that answer. And it really shows that we can have this conversation and talk about the similar experiences that we have both uh, gone through. And like today is literally the first day that we have ever had an extended conversation with one another, yet we're able to relate to one another because of these experiences. Mm -hmm. And um, what you said about hiring black journalists and then kind of just pushing them in a corner or shoving them in the opinion section. I think that that's also a very, um, <clears throat> excuse me, overlooked process or, or, or um, action that we don't talk about because as you said, um, because the black experience is so foreign or other for some people, they don't know what to do with it or they're afraid, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't know why my, my throat is so dry. Um, it's so foreign to them or it, they're so afraid of hearing what it's like that they want to look diverse for hiring a certain type of people, yet they don't want to have a, divi a, a diversity of opinion. And yeah. I think that that's like, a very insidious and dangerous thing that uh, we don't talk about enough. It would make me mad sometimes because I would be in the Sun's newsroom and I know that Baltimore is 60% black. And I know that Baltimore is a city with a rich history of black literature and black writing. And I don't, I see a handful of black people. How do you even do that? <laughs> like you can walk, you can't walk out of, you know, anywhere in Baltimore and not see black people. And yet when you walk into a, a news outlet, you don't see them. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I continue my conversation with Lisa Snowden of Baltimore Beat. I'm Jason V. This is Local Color. Stay with us. Hey, I'm Jason V. This is Local Color. And my guest is Lisa Snowden, editor-in-chief of the Baltimore Beat. That was founded and launched uh, and then relaunched both times by you. Uh, and, and the second time around, it was it was uh, launched with this generous one million dollar grant. Um, can you talk about the process of securing that kind of funding funding and being strategic with what you fund from an operations standpoint? That money came out of nowhere. <laughs> At that point, the beat was in a little bit of a hiatus. I was getting some money, but not enough to survive. So I'd gotten another job at the Real News Network, which is a um, progressive news outlet here in Baltimore City as well. Mm -hmm. And I was really sad one day. This was um, Rakia Void. I think that's what her name, the lady in Texas that had been killed by police. She was sleeping in her bed. I think that we were hearing about that situation. And I was just like sad. And Brandon Soderbergh, who is my partner with Baltimore Bee, called me. I was like, I have to tell you something and it's going to sound crazy, but it's real. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and he's like, this foundation wants to give us a million dollars. And I was like, oh my God. So they had already decided, Adam Hollis Center, who works here in Baltimore, he runs Maryland Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. So he helps artists and creatives get like legal backing if they need it. Cause you know, sometimes artists and creatives don't have the money for lawyers, um, but don't need it. So, so we were in, we ran in similar circles. I knew who he was because we're both kind of adjacent to Baltimore's arts community. I did not know that he had access through his family to a million dollars, but 
I think that he had been thinking about the work, Adam is a white person. Mm -hmm. So he had been thinking about the work that white people need to do. Um, he and his family saw the death of George Floyd and the outcry that came after that. And then also the pandemic hitting and black communities being affected more. And he basically, he and his family basically decided that they needed to do more, more than just kind of give out smaller grants, which they had been doing and just divest themselves of that money entirely. He had already liked the work that The Beat did and decided that The Beat is something that they wanted to support. So like, I've had people come to me and say that they want, to, want me to talk about how to secure that funding. And there was nothing that I could have done to tell him, you should give me a million dollars. I think that what I did do was make sure that I brought my best work to the Baltimore Beat. So it was something that they knew that they could trust me with this money. That was the work that I did by bringing my best self to the Baltimore Beat in whatever iteration it was in, you know, every time and establishing kind of like a brand mm -hmm. and just a place in Baltimore's community that funders could, you know, that he, and then we got some others, we've gotten some other grant, but like funders can trust. So when it came to that money, I was out of the process of kind of how, like the decision to give us the money was one thing. Mm -hmm. um, but then there had to be kind of like this process because we knew that we wanted to get it with no strings attached. Mm -hmm. Because I think that when you're doing journalism, you need to make sure that you don't have any outside sources interfering with the work. So there's never a situation with like what we do at the Baltimore Beat where I have to go to the Lillian Hollis Center Foundation and say, hey, is it okay if I do this? Or, you know, let me present you with my editorial calendar for next year. Like none of that has to happen. Yeah, you didn't want that money to be to become attached with um, like prerequisites or conditions like we'll give you this money, but we're going to make you report on the things that we want you to report. Exactly. On. Okay. So that was important. Um, and actually I was left out of those conversations a little bit on purpose um, because they didn't want me to, because it was basically a lot of white people having conversations mm. and they wanted me to kind of, not have to worry about it. It was basically Brandon, who was white, Brandon Soderbergh, who's my partner, was like, I'm going to take over this. Don't worry about it. So it was like us kind of proving, you know, letting them know what we would do with the money so that they felt good and making sure that they felt comfortable, making sure that we felt comfortable with them and then getting to a point where, okay, we're all okay with this money being given away with no strings attached. Once I got the money, I knew that I wanted to, I could not do all the writing myself and also run the paper. I'd tried that before in the first iteration and it's too much work. I mean, I still do a lot of writing, but I knew that I needed to have other support staff for writing and content. And I wanted to, like I wanted to take that money and give it to other black people. So we hired Terry Henderson, who previously worked at Be More Art and has also written a book on black collages. And we hired her as our arts and culture, culture editor we hired J. Brian Charles as our deputy news editor. And J. Brian Charles has a long and deep history of journalism. Um, he's done a lot of reporting on education and crime. And so they really help us a lot with a lot with our writing. And we also have a um kind of we have a CFO because 
I am a journalist and I went into English and language arts because math scared me. And math <laughs> doesn't scare me as much now. Like I definitely, you know, I know that I have to know about money, but I knew also that just like I couldn't spend all my time writing, I also can't spend all my time, you know, in our financial books. So it was important that I spent some some money on getting somebody who knew how to handle money and also knew how to what it what it takes to run a nonprofit. So that's how we've spent our money so far. Uh, I see. Okay. Uh, in interviews uh, where you talk about the the Baltimore beat, which a lot of people see as a spiritual successor to City Paper, because you know you worked at City Paper, and one of the I guess main goals of the Baltimore beat is to report on stories that will hold um, city administrations and officials accountable for their actions or inaction. Um, mm -hmm. In interviews, when you talk about the Baltimore beat, you say that there's enough space in Baltimore. Uh, for multiple black-led outlets in the city and not needing to, quote-unquote, step on the toes of other newspapers like uh, like the Afro or the Baltimore Times, for example. Mm -hmm. Does that require you to temper any type of competition or do you still feel like you're in it to win it? Like, hey, there's, there's, a, there's like enough room for all of us, but, you know, I, I still got to put my, my best foot forward. I think that there's money for everybody. Like I, I try to make sure that I don't operate out of lack. Um, so I think it's my job to do the best for the that I can for fundraising in the lane that I'm in. But like those two outlets, you know, I can't even try to step into the Afro's footprint because it's over a hundred years old. It was started by someone who was a former, you know, former slave. I can't even try to compete with that. And they have a specific point of view and they have a specific lane, just like the Baltimore Times. I've been, they're not as, they haven't been along, around as long as the Afro, but also started by a black woman who's been doing this work for a long time. And so they have a specific lane. I think that there's money out there for all of us. I think that there's stories for all of us and there's, there's space for us to say, to kind of present different views of Baltimore City. Okay. And this is a good segue. This isn't a question that I wrote down, but I, I still wanted to talk with you about it. Um, so I follow you on Twitter. I don't I'm not active on Twitter at all. I just like to lurk and follow people and <laughs> and watch messy dramas unfold. Yes, that's um, smart. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what I've noticed on Twitter is that you are um, incredibly outspoken and vocal and um, critical of Baltimore's administrations, you know, the current uh, mayor's administration. Um, my question for you is, how did you build up that muscle to be unafraid to say exactly what's on your mind and like at the people that you are being critical of? Because sometimes like I have so much stuff on my mind and I'm very politically minded and like plugged into local politics and stuff. But sometimes I'm just afraid to say something because I don't want people to dogpile me or uh, or show up at my house or something. So how did you um, how did you just become how did you just become fearless? Getting really mad, like mm. just getting angry and seeing that people weren't, nobody was saying anything. Mm. And for me, I'm just like, it makes me, I think that Baltimore is such a great city. I love the people of the city and they pay, the people pay taxes to these people. We pay, everybody pays taxes for these resources. Everybody pays Marilyn Mosby and Brandon Scott and Nick Mosby, they paid them 
And for them to get such inadequate service, to have people that just kind of are so comfortable treating these people and giving them like the least, it just makes me so mad. Mm. And so like what I do is like, it's what I do is on Twitter is not journalism, but I do bring kind of like the way that I investigate to my tweets. Like there's never, or I try very hard to not ever have a time where what I say is not backed up with information. So like I will watch, you know, maybe I've written a story about a, a bill. So I've watched, I've either attended or I've watched online the hearing for this bill, or I've talked to, to activists or I've talked to people. Talk, so I have the information. Right. And once I get to that tweet and I see somebody being ridiculous, <laughs> then I I take that information and I'm like, this is ridiculous and this is why. And so feeling like that, I don't, once I do that, and it's the same as when I write a story, I have the information, I put it together and I put the story out in the world. Once I put the information out there, the tweet in the world or the story in the world, I've done as much work as I can in the background to prepare it. And so I, I feel pretty confident standing behind it. That being said, I'm wrong sometimes. And I try to also just like in the beat, if we have, um, if we make a mistake, we print a retraction. If I realize that I'm wrong or I misspoke, then I also try to do that and be accountable as much as I can on Twitter. I, I like that you mentioned that as well, because I think we live in this weird uh, era where people are allowed to say kind of whatever they want, but they're not allowed to be wrong or say, hey, you know, I, I made a mistake, so allow me to, to formally um, apologize. And that also makes me think about just the current state of journalism that we're in now. What do you think about the current state of journalism? The thing that excites me the most is local and independent journalism. Um, when, when we first started The Beat, it was a regular, like for-profit newspaper. We had a publisher. We planned on making money on ads. Um, when that didn't work out and our publisher pulled out, we were looking for what to do. And we were told that basically like, there's this whole kind of groundswell of reporters that are finding themselves out of jobs all over the country that are looking into independent and nonprofit media. So I didn't have to really invent anything when I transitioned to be in, from for-profit to nonprofit. There were already journalists doing that work. I'm going to Austin, Texas at the end of this week for a conference of local independent online journalists. And I think that's so important because then you're not beholden to you know, some big advertiser that can pull all their ads and collapse your paper. Or you're not you're not beholden to one very wealthy or one or two very wealthy people that are um, financing your paper. These are regular working class people in communities all over the country that care about, they're doing this because they care about their communities. And to me, that's just really exciting. And it just really breaks open the way that information is dispersed the who gets to tell the stories and how they tell the stories oh gotcha yeah i am i'm a pretty big fan of uh independent progressive news media uh a lot of the stuff that i follow is like on youtube so i'll watch a lot of uh like youtube videos i mean so i think like, go ahead. that's the other thing also is just like internet has made it so much easier if we were born 30 years before like you wouldn't be able to just get podcast equipment 
you would have to go like either buy your own radio station or convince somebody to give you, you know, a TV, a, you know, a radio show. And so we get to now have your voice and your outlook because it's, I mean, I'm sure that it's not cheap, but it's more, it's more possible than it ever was in the past. Oh yeah. The barrier to entry for podcasting is pretty low, uh, but kind of like with um, journalism or just media in general, the real capital comes in the form of engagement and, and eyeballs or, or mm -hmm. ears or however people um, consume it. And I appreciate you giving a positive outlook on the state of journalism, especially as it pertains to independent and local journalism, because I feel with the mainstream media, um, it can feel really hopeless and, and doom and gloom, but of course, you know, we both work, well, I formerly worked in media, but um, the, the saying goes, if it bleeds, it leads. So they're just gonna put out stuff that's gonna make you feel like the world's gonna be ending tomorrow. But that's mm -hmm. um, when you, when you kind of go looking for stuff, uh, you'll find that that's not, um, not entirely the case. Um, so we're gonna start finishing up here. What is coming up next for you and the Baltimore Beat, and how can readers find it online and in print? Um, coming up for us is just more issues of the Beat. We publish every two weeks. We're going to keep building. I would really like to um, be able to have more voices included in the paper, and that's something that I'm working on right now. Um, so fundraising has to happen also. If you would like to find out more about the Baltimore Beat, our website is baltimorebeat.com. We publish the paper and then distribute it for free all over the city of Baltimore. And if you go on our website, you can even look at a map and it'll tell you where a distribution spot is near you. We are on Twitter at baltbeat.com. Oh, I'm sorry, it's at baltbeat. I'm on Twitter at, at Lisa McRae. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, just Baltimore Beat. What makes Baltimore so unique and unlike any other city in the United States? I just think that Baltimore is just like a no BS town with such a great sense of humor about itself. Like one of the reasons why I even got on Twitter is to laugh really. Like even though we talk, I talked about being mad and I, I do get mad, but it's just something about like the way that Baltimore is able to laugh at itself and not take itself too seriously and also just call out BS that I just love as a journalist. I think that like people that work in the media, we like to, we like to talk, you know, talk mess. We like <laughs> that. So it, it just, it, it jives with my personality. Lisa Snowden, thank you so much for the opportunity to interview you. Thank you so much for having me on. That was Lisa Snowden, editor-in-chief of the Baltimore Beat newspaper. Read more and donate online at baltimorebeat.com. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Local Color. The podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jason V. The podcast is distributed by Your Public Studios. New episodes of Local Color will be released the second and fourth Wednesday of each month. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Learn more about Local Color at WYPR.org.